called Relentless for five weeks. And so a couple bits of housekeeping. Uh, first, we're doing a devotional along with it. It looks like this. If uh, you have your ebook copy, you can get a free copy of this on Amazon. If you go on Amazon and you put in the search box, uh, Jonah Devotional, or you put in my name in the search box, this should be the first thing up. You can have that. It's free again today. Um, if you want to buy a copy, that's your problem, not mine. Um, I, I, we make it free any way we can. So um, it's there on Amazon for free as an ebook. Uh, we put it on Facebook every single morning at 6 a.m. That day's devotional comes out. And so if you want to access it that way, you don't even have to go on Amazon. You just do what you normally do. Wake up, roll over, wipe the drool off, check to see uh, your Facebook. So just do that as you normally do. That's allowed. Um, or uh, we even did this once this week. If you are one of these people that you go, you know what? I don't want to fuss with any of that. Will you just send it to me in a PDF? I will actually do that. And so any way you want to have access to it, the goal for us is that we want to make this a fully enveloping uh, month for you. We want this to be an everyday kind of march and, and saturation in God's love and his relentless grace. And so that's what's there for you. I said this is week two, which would tell us something. Week one, uh, when we're going through the narrative of Jonah, we find Jonah uh, getting a call from God and then uh, basically turning his back on God and running. Jonah is a book about running, about rescue, about the depth of God's love. It's about unlikely provision. Today, we will see that in addition to deep rescue. But, but Jonah runs, and where we left off in the story, God sends this incredible storm. And the storm sort of exposes that Jonah has turned his back on God. It sort of exposes that Jonah is not where he's supposed to be. And so we pick up the story there with the other guys, the sailors on the boat that he is on, kind of saying, okay, so if this is your fault, what do we do? Okay, so we pick it up in Jonah uh, chapter 1, verse 10. It says, Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. And so they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me, Jonah says, that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us the innocent blood. For you, O Lord, you have done as you pleased. And so they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. We'll get to that. Where we start with this idea is that the sailors, the, the fellow travelers, are asking Jonah, what have you done and what can we do? I mean, those are the two main questions on display here. What have you done? And Jonah says, well, I'm running from the Lord. And they go, so what do we do to get rid of this problem? Ultimately, what Jonah's saying is you have to get rid of me. I, I'm, I'm the problem, and so if you want this to go the right way, it's going to have to go the other way. He says, hurl me into the sea, which reminds me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait for my children to say this one day. One of my favorite things in the world is when my kids put themselves in timeout. Like they know they've done something so bad, and they're about to get the full wrath that they just go, yeah, uh, I, think I, I think I need to be in timeout. Which is the most disarming thing for a parent because the whole point of the anger and the rage and the go to time out is to like make them recognize that they've done something wrong and, and to bring shame. And you know, it, it gets a little bit ugly sometimes. And so there have been these moments, especially my older one, my younger one, she, you know, we know better now, right? You're getting to know her a little bit. She would run from time out and then hide time out and then convince me there wasn't time out and she'd get candy out of it. So that's how that would work. But 
the older one will at times she'll get in trouble. She'll go, you know what? I think I just belong in timeout. And all my anger evaporates. So I'm like, well, yes, you do. Except that the point of timeout is that you'll recognize your behavior. And so since you've already recognized it, guess what? Don't worry about it. You know, have some candy, right? That's my ultimate parenting strategy. It's this beautiful picture, though. When a kid comes under conviction, it's this really beautiful picture. When a child understands they've done something wrong, when a child understands that maybe I I shouldn't have done that, that's the goal. That's the picture we're aiming for. And that's the picture we get in Jonah here is he's sort of like, oh, I think I belong in timeout. Like, like maybe this was me and I, I get it now. And it oddly satisfies my anger. And you see in the way that the sea reacts to him being thrown overboard that it seems to have satisfied God's anger in the moment. Because the whole point of punishment is so they recognize wrong and correct it. Jonah recognizes his disobedience and the sea ceases its raging. And so a key in Jonah early on when we're, we're in this narrative that there's this early key that we can circle, we can underline, we can point at, which is that we have to admit that we run from God. Like the first step in, in getting back to God is admitting that we're running in the first place. Not only that we're running, but how we're running, where we're running, where do we go. But, but it seems almost too obvious to point out that, that this key point in this passage is here when Jonah admits he's running. For a lot of us, that's the hardest thing to do. He's admitting that he's a fugitive from God. That he's done something wrong, and in response to this wrong behavior, he's run. He's a fugitive. For us, we have to get to a place where we can admit to being fugitives from God. Where our disobedience leads to our running instead of our wanting to face up to what's coming. This requires another admission. If we're going to be fugitives, it requires that we acknowledge that God is not just an idea or a concept, but a personal being. God is not a self-help book with, you know, four easy steps to a better life. God is not some sort of divine clickbait. These Ten Commandments will change your life. You won't believe number seven, right? And you're like, oh, I'll click that. That's how we view God. Oh, he's some sort of self-help guy. There's this book. I mean, most self-help things have books. I guess I'll get the book. There's got to be help in there. And then you find these Ten Commandments. You're like, I can do those. I I guess that works. And it's none of those things. God is not a set of commandments. God is not a self-help book. God is a personal being. And we we reduce, because that that idea is so mind-blowing, we have to reduce it into a way we can understand it. And so when we're in need of material provision, God becomes Santa Claus or vending machine, and we appeal to God for more stuff. When we're in need of healing, God becomes sort of this like mystical physician, and we appeal for, for health or healing, and, and it's all of that. And then more that we don't understand. When we're running, we're not running from a concept. We're not running from Buddhism. We're not running from the South Beach diet. We're not violating the code of, it's not that. When we run from God, we're running from someone. We're running from a personal being that intends to know us. And so step one is the admission that I run. This is essential actually for even becoming a believer. We have to recognize that we're on the run. Step two is then how do I run? If, if, if it requires us to admit we run in order to become a believer, it requires us to admit how we run in order to grow as a believer. 
Because storms will come. Storms always come. And the reality is it isn't the storms that turn us into deeper, wiser people. It's our response to the storm and what we learn from it. Because we all know plenty of people that have gone through storm after storm after storm and they don't seem to learn the lesson. They don't seem to change behavior. They don't seem to get it. And it's maddening for us until we turn the mirror around and we realize often it is us in various ways. It's our response to the storm that ultimately changes our trajectory. And when we talk about storms, we usually place this into a category, you know, like Jonah does something wrong and the storm comes as a response. And so then we begin to ask that question. Well, like, so, so is a storm in my life always directly correlated to my bad behavior? Like, is that why this happened? Is that why things go bad, God? Is it because that I, I'm not perfect and so because I'm not perfect, you punish me through this stuff? People start asking questions like, why do bad things happen to good people? It assumes we live a wonderful life and we deserve great things. But they, they ask this of Jesus. In Luke 13, we won't read it, but basically, the folks around Jesus said, is it the Galileans that are greater sinners? Or is it those folks that got crushed by that tower that fell? There was a tower in Siloam that fell and, and killed people. And the folks around Jesus go, which ones were greater sinners? Is it the Galileans or those people that got killed by that tower? To which Jesus basically replied, don't be so arrogant to assume that tragedy happens in people's lives and because of it, they must be worse than you. Basically, Jesus responds to them and says, nobody gets what they deserve. Nobody gets what they deserve. That a storm is not a direct response to misbehavior because none of us get what we deserve because if we did, according to scripture, that wrath is unending. We got a, a text actually this week. This is not an uncommon question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Somebody texted us and said, hey, someone asked me this, and I, will you just answer for me, and I'll pass it on. And it's not the first time, it's not the last time someone will ask, well, what's, what's our answer to evil in the world? How do we, as believers in Jesus, respond to this idea that stuff goes wrong? How do I explain to someone who doesn't like that? And we said it's a two-part system. The first part is the universal view that says sin enters into the world. Sin enters into the world, and, and shalom, which a lot of people say peace, it's wholeness, like perfect wholeness. Shalom is broken. And so the way things were designed becomes broken by sin, and that happens in the garden. And then from there on out, this brokenness kind of persists. It gets into the DNA. It gets into the, the very generational pattern of life. And so universally, there is brokenness. That's part one. People go, yeah, that's great, but what about me? And you go, well, Part two is when we zoom in real close to you, that brokenness exists still. And here's where it feels kind of unjust, is because it isn't just our brokenness, but it's brokenness passed down. It's brokenness, physical brokenness, spiritual brokenness. We know people that go through medical brokenness, and you go, what, what did they do to deserve that? And you have to sit back and you go, you know, sometimes the storm you're in isn't something you brought on yourself. Sometimes you get swept up in your neighbor's storm, in your spouse's storm. Sometimes you get swept up in storms you didn't know you were going to be in. And that's when you have to zoom back out and go, this is that universal view that things are just broken. Things just aren't right. And because they're not right, I live in a world where not everything's right. And even though I do right things, or I try, it doesn't always lead to right outcomes. And that's hard. Because then the next question someone will ask me is then, so what's the solution? And you pick any seven-year-old you want, you bring him in the room, you go, hey, what's the answer? And they'll say it, Jesus. And that's not really satisfying in the moment because it doesn't fix the storm. 
But it's like God created us, right? God creates us, and then Greg sings this song, it's your breath in our lungs. Do we believe that? Do we believe that God created us, but not only did he, did he knit us, did he make us, did he breathe into us, but that it's, it's his ongoing breath that sustains us. That you and I live because of the pleasure of God. We live and take our next breath because God decrees it possible. So often we acknowledge him as, as sort of a distant concept, but then we live for our own joy and our pleasure moment by moment. Then we ask the question, what do we deserve? It's as if the question should flip, I think, probably. It shouldn't be, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? But it probably should be more like, seeing how we treat God and others, why does God allow so much beauty and life and joy and fullness? We turn the news on, and, and you know, we all like to think we're that special island of perfection and humanity, but you turn the news on, and you get a pretty good cross-section of who we are as people. We're flawed. We're in war and there's oppression. There's trouble around every corner. We live in brokenness and we live in sin and we live and we try. But, but not one of us has made it to the point of perfection. And when you magnify that and you multiply that times seven billion, you get problems. And so if a creator God looks down upon this earth, the question isn't why does God allow bad things to happen to such good people? The question should be considering all that we get ourselves into Isn't it amazing that God allows so much joy and fullness and life? That's actually the irreconcilable part, rationally. It's irreconcilable that in a world of such brokenness, God still allows so much joy. That's hard to understand. I can actually look at, at my life and go, I actually deserve a whole lot worse than I got. And yet, I got this? I got this family, I have this health, I have these kids, I have this provision, I have food on my, I have a roof, I, huh? That to me is irreconcilable because if I added up all the other things that I deserved, those don't seem to exist. I can't find those. That's why it's so astonishing to see somebody look to God or praise God in loss or in tragedy or in grief or in mourning. It's so astonishing to see that, and it's such a a stark picture when you see that. When you see somebody in the, the arms of suffering and they look to God. The outside world totally doesn't get it. It's a bizarre behavior. Those of us who follow Jesus, we would see it as incredible humility. It's incredibly humble to suffer well in the midst of tragedy. Why? Because it requires a proper view of oneself. Humility is just recognizing our size in the overall picture. That clicks for Jonah at some point. Jonah, Jonah gets this proper view. He sees himself as a created creature, not as creator. And that's such a, a, it's such a simple little switch. But so many of us, we live our lives in such control in this culture that we operate as creator. And it's not until we get to a place where we see ourselves as created creature that we actually get it. Jonah sees this. It clicks for him. He says, you know what? This storm is actually my fault. This is a one-to-one correlation. This is on me. He repents. He realizes he can't outrun God. And so for the first time in the narrative that we see, for the first time, Jonah looks up and Jonah says, this isn't about me right now. I'm not going to think of myself first. This is about more than me. This is bigger than me. Jonah finds humility and he's, he kind of pulls out a little bit and he sees something greater happening. It's his, his problem of perspective has gone away. And I would argue we all have in our greatest moments 
of uh, a pride, a lack of perspective. And so I'm going to show you a picture to try to illustrate this better than I can say it with my words. This is our picture. Isn't that beautiful? So I'm going to walk over and see if I can point out, I think I know what it is. This looks kind of like grass in this zone right here, maybe. It's really pixelated. Um, maybe, I don't know what's back there, like clouds or rocks or something. That, that's a really nice picture, though, I think. I think it's a great picture. There's like, yeah, I, well, up there, I have a cheater screen up there. I can see it looks like grass up there. I don't know. What do you think it is? Could be like a spider web. What if we zoomed out? Same picture. It's a problem of perspective. So I take the picture and I grab this part right here. It's the same picture. It's the same scene. It's the same colors. It's the same place. So many of us see our lives in the zoomed-in, pixelated minutiae. And we don't recognize that we are part of a larger scheme. We're part of a larger picture. We get so focused on our pixelated life that we can't, we can't zoom out anymore and go, this is something greater. There's majesty beyond what I can consider. There's majesty beyond my circumstances. There's grace beyond my pain. There's hope beyond my suffering. We spend our lives tending to our seven blades of grass, never looking up to see the vista that God has put in our way. And perspective changes everything. Repentance, in some sense, is opening ourselves up to a larger perspective. Because a larger perspective has us answer different questions. Once we open our perspective up to something greater, we have to ask different questions. When you're zoomed in, the question is, how do I keep my seven blades of grass alive and looking good? When you zoom out, that seems totally arbitrary to the greater thing that's happening. You can think about it environmentally, right? You think about my yard. How do I get weeds out of my yard? Man, I got Roundup like you wouldn't believe in my garage, okay? I'm like the Roundup king. I can mix that stuff, get rid of a couple gallons like that. Because why not? It's super easy. I round up everything. I'm going to start rounding up bath time, round up all of it. Everybody's clean, no diseases, no nothing. We're all rounded up in here. That's like a good idea when you zoom in on my yard. But if every single one of us treated their yards like I do mine, we would have an entirely polluted water source and none of us would ever be able to survive in this region again because of the amount of Roundup we use. But we don't think of it that way. We think about mine, not ours. When we think about our problems, we think about my problem, not how does God see my problem in light of the entire universe of creation. So we ask these different questions when we zoom out. What does God love? What does God hate? What does God desire? Until we see our lives in proper proportion, we live in a reality of our own making. It's how we become our own gods. We live in this fantasy world, this pixelated, blurry mess that makes sense to us, but doesn't make sense in the, the idea of the larger idea. Jonah realizes his place, right? He realizes he's been living in this zoomed-in place. He stops making excuses. He says, throw me overboard. In essence, he's saying, give me what I deserve. He repents. He turns. Most people who've been in church any amount of time said, they, they, okay, repentance is to turn, to turn from your sin. Jonah is literally 
sailing away from where he's supposed to be. And so at some point he says, you know what? My repentance is I got to turn back the other direction. And if that means I got to get off this boat, I guess you're going to throw me. He turns from his obstinate opposition, which is something we should notice. In verse 10, it says the men on the boat were exceedingly afraid and terrified. Exceedingly afraid and terrified. This is important because these are not um, first-time sailors that he's out with, right? He's on a merchant ship to Tarshish. These are experienced men who've been on this water many times, and they are not, like, a little worried about the storm. They are exceedingly terrified. They've seen it all. And the storm that they are in is beyond what they're used to. It's beyond what they're capable of handling. They are dropping on their knees and each praying to their own God, begging for mercy from this thing. This is enormous. We fear lots of things, don't we? We could go through the room and count all your irrational fears. Mine isn't snakes, I'll tell you that. Not snakes at all. If you ever see snakes, let me know so I don't, you know, I'm not afraid of them or anything. But it's sort of an issue for me. You ask my wife, we watch a movie where snakes are in the movie. I will have nightmares that night about snakes. 40% of the reason we moved to Ohio, it's confession time, is there's less snakes. (laughs) The winter, they like, they go away. I can walk through the woods. I'm not quite as worried. This is like, this is a big deal. Snakes are kind of a bad thing for me. And this is exponentially greater than any of our individual irrational fears. This is grown, hardy, manly men on their knees crying out to whoever they might to find mercy in the middle of a storm. And yet, Jonah hits the water. Jonah is thrown overboard. And in this moment where nothing is more terrifying than opposing God, Jonah hits the water and the trouble is over for them. Not for him. He's thrown into this roiling ocean. And even though it settles when he hits the water, he's now thrown overboard, which is its own sort of issue. And yet God provides. It's interesting if you read the whole narrative as we go through this, what does God provide? When you talk about Jonah, people will often identify one thing that God provides. Well, God provided that, the, the great fish. And I would say that's accurate. God provides this fish to scoop up Jonah so Jonah doesn't drown in the middle of the ocean. But I'd say if you go back and you just identify as you read through, does God provide a call to Jonah's life? Yes. Does God provide a ship for Jonah to be disobedient? Does God allow that? Yeah. God provides a storm. God provides a fish. God provides a second chance. You're going to see over and over, God is providing all of these things. It's almost as if God knows what Jonah's going to do and in his sovereignty allows Jonah to do it just the right way so that God can bring about his plan. Jonah scooped up in the belly of a great fish, so God has intervened again. Like a lifeboat was preferable, but for Jonah, you have to think, well, this is better than death, right? And this is funny for us because we, we all long for God to intervene in our life when we're in certain circumstances, but we usually have a way we'd like for it to happen, right? We very rarely go, God, I, I pray for your, your provision. Just whatever you think would be perfect. Because in the back of our minds, when we're honest, we know what that list is. I'm consistently surprised uh, when I do premarital counseling. Not here, guys, not here. Um, that that I'll, I'll say, well, how did you get together? Or what? tell me the story. And, and somewhere in that story, the, the young bride-to-be will mention this list. You girls know what I'm talking about yet? Well, he, I met him, and I, he just fulfilled so many things on my list. 
And I'll be like, a list? Like for a guy, let me explain real quick. For a guy, the, the list of things required for a, a woman to marry, the guy's like, she's not embarrassed of me. She will deal with me. And she doesn't think I'm hideous. Like that's the list. Hey, you're good looking and you don't think I'm hideous? This is great. We're married. This is men. And yet I've met all these young women who go, no, no, I have this list. And I'm like, okay, well, you know. And, and in my head, I start preparing for, um, he's sweet, he's godly, he's kind, he's good with kids. Those are the things I think I'm about to hear. It's never that. He needs to be at least 6'2". Between 180 and 210, not, not too skinny. But we don't get overweight. We've got to keep him in that good zone there. 6'2", 190 would be great. He needs to make... I don't know. I mean, six figures is a lot to ask for, but, you know, okay, until seven. We'll say six just for now. We'll settle. Blue eyes are cool. Hazel, if we have to, that's okay. Secondary, but we'll get there. He needs to be a good swimmer. Good swimmer. No Speedos, though. That's weird. (laughs) Prefer he uses this detergent because I'm weird about that, and I like the certain smell, and if he doesn't use that, then I'm going to get him using that. I can change him. Don't worry. His middle initial needs to be J. It's got to have this kind of power vibe to it. And, and there's, there's like 40,000 things on these lists. How anybody ever gets married, I don't know. Guys were like, um, is it okay if I have some back hair? Yeah? Cool. We're in. I'm done. Where do you want to go to dinner? Not that that's my problem, right? Perhaps we've said too much. Right, our prayers are this plea to an all-knowing God. Knows exactly what we need, knows exactly when we need it. And we often still deliver them in the context of the very few pixels that we can see. We say, God, I want a view like you wouldn't believe. Got to have some green grass and, and various textures. And we end up creating that, that little corner of the screen. And God's just waiting, this gracious father, to go, no, 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 step back with me. Look and see with me. The hardest thing for us to pray is your will be done. We often move from that to uh, your will be done, and can you explain to me why it would be what it is? Because it's really hard to say, God, your will be done, and give me grace to walk in it no matter what it is. The word will, when you see that in scripture, means one of two things. It's either plan or desire. In our language, we don't really have a way to meld those just right. And so it's often plan or desire that God has this plan that cannot be um, undone. It's coming. It's going to happen. God also has these desires, these hopes for us. This is, this is saying, God, your plan be fulfilled and let me be a part of it. When we pray that, God, your, your kingdom come, your will be done, that's to say, God, I want your plan fulfilled and can I please be part of it? And if you've been in church, you, you've probably heard in Romans where Paul says, God works all things to the good for those who love him. We hear that. We believe that. We know that. Do we pray that? Because we like to pray, God, give me good things because I love you. And what he's saying is, I will give you things and I will make sure that they work to your eventual ultimate good. And if you could just see my plan, you would recognize this. 
a good question to ask for us is one of you experienced provision that you didn't recognize in the moment. One of you experienced provision that in the moment you thought was curse or was storm. And then you zoom out a little bit. You get a little bit further from it. You get a few years between you and that moment. And you go, you know what? That, that was just right. That job I didn't get is actually the reason I am where I am now. Or that, that time I got caught doing this thing is actually the reason I live in this blessed moment. Most couples have this story. Where if it weren't for this person... It's our story. If it weren't for this person who didn't recognize what he had. And Steph's told her story, and I won't tell it for her. But if it weren't for somebody not recognizing something, and and, and him breaking something off, that in the moment, Steph never would have said, "I, I hope this falls apart. I hope this whole thing unravels. I hope I have great heartbreak, and I hope I, I need a whole network of people to hold me up in a time when Gosh, all I wanted was this path, and the whole path blows up. No one asked for that. And yet when she tells her story years later, she she says, I never would have asked for it, but I'm so glad it happened. Because had I gone down that path, I see where that leads now, and I don't want to be anywhere near there. So often, we see storms as God's response to our disobedience, not as God himself helping us back to obedience, helping us back to better. When have you experienced God's provision in a moment that you didn't recognize? How many of you have that story where you say, I wouldn't know where I'd be if not for this thing that in the moment I would never have asked for? Jonah gets swallowed by a sea monster. Jesus uses a term when referring to Jonah that when translated to Greek means great fish, shark, or whale. So when people say, well, what was it? Because that's ultimately the other question I'm going to get. The fish, whale, what are, we, what are we talking about? The term Jesus used was used in, in their society for great fish, shark, or whale. That same term that we, we have it in Greek, because Jesus didn't speak Greek, but that's what we got it. That same word is then used in historical documents and Greek mythology. All throughout historical documents and Greek mythology, that word refers to a sea dragon, a sea serpent, or a sea monster. So my answer to what was it that swallowed Jonah is, uh uh-huh. The question is, what do we make of it? Because monstrous things can be means to salvation if we'll just open our eyes to them. And the exact description of what God provides is decidedly less important than the provision itself. We get so caught up wanting to, to determine the exact provision that we forget that it isn't about the provision, it's about from where it comes. What it looks like is decidedly less critical than from whom it comes. Provision from a good God is always going to be good, whether or not we would have ordered it just that way or not. God intervenes in Jonah's life. God intervenes in our life. And how we respond ultimately defines the life we live. God is intervening in your life right now in some way. We say all the time, everyone's in a battle, everyone's in a storm, everyone's fighting something. Some big, some small. And we feel out of control. We don't know what to do. And the only thing we control in any given moment is our response to what has been hurled upon us. Jonah was thrown overboard, the sacrifice that was necessary to calm the seas. Years later, Jesus talks about this Jonah. Jesus says, quote, as Jonah went into death for three days and came back out, so I will die and rise again. Jesus authenticates the story of Jonah and then pulls it forward and uses it to refer back to himself. 
Jonah said, throw me over and you won't drown. Jesus said, throw me over and I will drown because you deserve it, but I will take it. Jesus, who didn't deserve to drown, was thrown into the wrath of God's, uh, of God's anger at sin. Jesus was thrown into the sea of wrath and punishment so that the penalty owed could be paid in full so that we, like the sailors, could know the perfect peace of a sea at rest. Jesus was the true and better Jonah. Jesus took the cross so that we could know peace. Jesus laid his life down so that our life might be saved. And the question is only, how do we respond? Today we remember and we respond. We have to admit we're fugitives. We run from God in big ways and little ways. We run to legalism. If I just follow more rules, this will all work out. We run to licentiousness, which is to say that none of the rules matter anyway. I'm just going to do what I want. We run. We have to admit that. We have to repent. We have to ask God to show us where is it that I've brought storms on my own life? Where is it that I'm out of step with what you want from me? How do we turn back? God, can you help me recognize that the pixels I am staring at are not the full picture you have? God, will you give me your perspective? Will you prepare my heart for your perspective so that I can see and be humbled that I am this in a sea of that? And when we see that, we recognize something, that I am not the author of my own breath. I am not the creator of my own days. I am not the leader of my own soul. That there is something greater happening, that I need you. Lord, I need you to sustain my day, to sustain my moment. My marriage needs you. My children need you. That without you, the glue holding this whole thing together disappears and we return to chaos. Lord, I need you. And we pray. We admit we're fugitives, we repent and turn back to God, and then we pray. We say, Lord, your will be done, your plan be fulfilled, and can I be a part of that? Help me walk in your plan, help me fulfill your desires, even when I don't understand it. Even when I don't get it, even when it doesn't make sense to me, even when it feels terrible, even when it's painful, even when it's suffering. Remind me that you're a God that sees beyond what I can see, that can see the day beyond my pain, that can tell me in the moment, I will never let you go. No matter how great the storm, no matter how great the, the waves, no matter how big the suffering, you never let me go. Remind me, Lord. That's our prayer. Remind me that there is nothing I can go through that you did not go through greater through Christ. And there is nothing I can run into that you did not solve through Christ. Because what we started at was this question that people ask. How, how, how do bad things happen? Why is there so much trouble? Why are there so many bad things? Why... Why is there this brokenness? And when Jesus came, Jesus came to bring healing, but not just personal, universal. Jesus came to bring back shalom, which is this whole life, whole universe, whole created goodness and wholeness. And so what we desire is to have our eyes open back up to that and then to walk in that in faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so much bigger than I can even acknowledge. You're so much greater than, than even when I try to zoom out and get some sense of who you are, how you see me.
You are more. You are bigger. You are greater. Father, I recognize that I live my life more days than not in those pixels, in that blurry mess of trying to figure it out for myself. So God, I pray that you would uh, open me up to something greater, that you would show me something bigger. Father, you would cause my heart to repent. God, that you would show me the areas of my life that are out of line with what you would have. You would show me the spots on my soul that I hide from everyone else that no one would ever know about, but that you see. Father, I pray that when I find those, when you show me, when you illuminate, God, that I would know that you are the only healing, that you are my only hope, that you are the only salvation. So, Father, as we study this running prophet, our prayer is the same week to week, that when we run, Father, let us run back to you. Let us be the child who recognizes wrong, who recognizes error, looks up to you and says, Father, I'm sorry, I see it. Find us, Father, in your embrace, in your joy, and in your peace. In Jesus' name, amen.